Hello, friends, and welcome to the U-Turn Podcast. This is your host, Ashley Stahl. I'm a career expert, a speaker, a best-selling author of the book, U-Turn. Get unstuck, discover your direction, design your dream career. And I created the U-Turn book and the podcast as a place to help you connect to who you truly are at your core. And that's why every single week, I want to bring a guest on with the intention of helping you expand what's possible for you, both in your confidence, whether it's in work or love, and just in life in general. So let's get into this week's episode. U-Turn friends, it's Ash here, and we need to talk about something that I think is on everyone's mind today, and it's productivity. How do you be as productive as possible? What are you doing to get in your own way? How do we actually stick to our goals. So I wanted to bring Demir Bentley onto the podcast. He's a productivity expert. Him and his wife are Wall Street Journal and USA Today bestselling authors of their new book, Winning the Week, How to Plan a Successful Week Every Week, and they're founders of the Life Hack Method. Um, so we're going to talk today about, you know, what is everybody getting wrong about productivity? Um, how do you plan your week effectively? What are some mindsets that we can get into? And so much more. The fall season is here, and while I watch the New York City leaves turn from green to brown, I cannot help but get really excited about the fall flavors. And like many of you, pumpkin spice just so happens to be one fall flavor I can't get enough of. So when our friends over at Soul CBD let me know they were releasing a new CBD tincture flavor of pumpkin spice, I had to get my hands on this bottle and I wanna share it with you. This tincture is the perfect starting point for your CBD journey. The reason that I love Soul CBD's project so much is that they're 99% hemp derived. So there's no THC, no fillers, just pure plant powered relief. So heading into the holidays with stressful travel, end of the year work rushes, having some extra support to calm your nervous system and reduce inflammation is so key. Just a few pumpkin spice CBD drops will do the trick. It's gluten-free, sugar-free, organic, everything free, feels like. (laughs) And this tincture is convenient and portable. You can just throw it in your purse or your bag so relief is just a drop away anytime, anywhere. Spice up your morning coffee with this pumpkin spice tincture or simply place a few drops under your tongue during a break. It's easy, it's powerful, it's delicious. Soul CBD has an epic discount to share with the U-Turn community of 15% off your order. Just head on over to ashleystall.com slash soul. That's A-S-H-L-E-Y-S-T-A-H-L dot com slash S-O-U-L to access our special page with them. And don't forget to use the code U-Turn, Y-O-U-T-U-R-N at checkout. Now let's get back to this week's episode. Thank you so much for being here. I love it. I love being here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. And you know what? It's crazy. Like this topic is so needed. And I, it's like, how have I not done an episode on this? Like what? <laughs> I mean, I-, I will say I didn't realize how, you know, we, we've we always said that there's like this epidemic of people working harder and harder generationally. I won't bore you with all the details, but like study after study shows that we are working way harder than previous generations for what effectively amounts to less economic rewards. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there's this epidemic of people and yet our expectations on ourselves are higher than higher. So like, you know, our grandparents didn't expect to be like, you know, goddesses in the gym and also like amazing mothers, but also queer women, but also like spiritual seekers, but also travel the world and enjoy themselves a little. Like actually like people benefited in previous generations from lower expectations and more containment around what where they could have their identity and be good. And now we've got this explosion in 
The world wants more from us. We want more from ourselves. We have to work harder to get fewer economic gains. And so this productivity problem is really more than just geeking out on productivity. It's like, how do I meet all of these expectations and not drive myself crazy? Yeah, exactly. And I know the Oracle study that came out during the pandemic saying that the average American worker has another hour per day on their schedule, which when you add that up, it's like, that's five hours a week. That's a part-time job that just got thrown on during the pandemic. And it's interesting, like, especially in the self-help space, there's a lot of dialogue around money and economic gain. And on one side, you get the message, like, don't just do something for the money. But then on the other side, it's like, the inflation is rising. And more than ever, we need um, to support ourselves. So I think that productivity and making more free time out of the time that you have have in your life is so powerful. What are some things that you think everyone kind of gets wrong about productivity, especially yeah. when you kind of think about New Year's? Like, I know in January, it's like the average amount of time until people drop their resolutions is like before the end of the month, even <laughs> by yeah. February. So what what is happening at the start of the year as we're kind of approaching a new year that people are just not getting right? I mean, okay, gosh, this could be uh, an encyclopedia. Because I actually think that productivity is extremely counterintuitive. And that's why we get it so wrong. Meaning your instinct would tell you to go left when actually exactly what you need to do is go right. And so that in a hundred thousand different ways, we are like relying on our intuition to get productivity right. And is the most counterintuitive thing that you could embark on. And so I think the biggest thing that people get wrong with productivity is not recognizing how counterintuitive it actually is. So let me give an example. Um, you know, a counterintuitive would be to say, you know, oh, well, you know, I actually, you know, intuitively, I think about this project, it feels like it would take four hours. Guarantee you, it is not going to take four hours. Mm -hmm. Guaranteed. In fact, study after study reflects what we call the planning fallacy, which is that we have a like measurable tendency to overestimate what we can do and underestimate how long things take, right? So that is a, just a classic example. And there's like nearly 200 of those where our intuition will actually lead us very wrong. And mm. so I think once you accept that productivity is an extremely counterintuitive journey, then you open yourself up to maybe taking left-hand turns when you should have taken, when you felt like you should have taken a right. Okay. And I love, by the way, seeing through the camera that you have an aura ring on, like being productive about your health. Love that for you. <laughs> Way to live the message. Okay, so a couple questions about that. Like, I'm so big on intuition. I used to work in national security and intuition was like a life-saving thing that I was taught. And I always want to encourage people to listen to it, but I always, I'm also aware that sometimes we are taught so much that it's hard to listen to our intuition or create habits that really sync up. Can, um, can I modify that and say, I think sometimes our intuition can be dialed in. Yeah. Right. So for example, like um, calories are a great example, right? So you take the average person off the street and you ask them to estimate how many calories they're eating. They are over, they're sorry, they're underestimating it by usually 20%, right? Wow. Which means that when we go to ask ourselves intuitively, am I eating enough? You're sort of saying, oh, I feel like I'm eating enough and yet I'm gaining all this weight. Intuition leads you wrong, right? Yeah. So, but then is, does that mean that we should not listen to our intuition? No, actually the middle path there is to say when we calorie count, I think the mistake with calorie counting is relying on the data, What you should be doing. And what I do I like to do is I like to play a game where I guess how many calories were in a meal and mm -hmm. then I track it. What that's doing is tuning my intuition and saying like, now I can look at a muffin and be like, 
that's 450 calories. And I can tell you that it's probably these many carbs, these many, these many fats and these many. Now, am I getting it perfectly? No, but what I'm doing is dialing in my intuition and actually sharpening intuition. So I would actually agree with you. I think intuition can be powerful, but it can also be tuned and we need to recognize when it's out of tune. Yeah, 100%. And I know that um, I'm actually the opposite as an entrepreneur. I don't know if I'm just like recreationally motivated, but um, or lazy or what my situation is. But I, I basically when I write my column for Forbes every month, I always tell myself that I need four hours to write it when really, if I was focused, it would take me an hour and a half. Yeah, but I yeah. calculate it's like know thyself. I know me and I know I'm gonna You've your around my apartment. Yeah. yeah. So on one side, I'm like, pleased with myself because I'm pretty much like staying on my calendar. On the other side, I'm like, wow, Ashley, do you really have to need two and a half hours to fumble and bumble around your apartment thinking about this article versus just getting it done? Um, so what's your feedback on like how people can start getting more close to optimizing? Because I know that even though I'm honoring that, it's almost like because I set aside four hours, I use the four hours versus like, if you want yeah. something done, give it to the busy person. So I don't know, just any feedback on that would be great. I think I think it's important to understand that time estimation is a one-way street, right? Yeah. Meaning if you pad all of your time estimates for the coming week and you end up getting it done sooner, then what's the negative outcome? Well, you could just do more, right? Mm -hmm. Or take some time to yourself or start working into the projects for next week, right? It's no real downside. But if you overschedule yourself this week, right? And you make too many commitments and it actually ends up taking more. It becomes like this house of cards, this domino of a crap storm that just it won't stop where, you know, Monday, uh, you know, falling apart on your goals on Monday leads to falling apart on Tuesday, Wednesday. Right. And it just becomes this, you know, uh, yeah, negative domino fall all yeah. the way throughout the week. And then of course you get discouraged. And weirdly on weeks like that, you can get a lot done and still feel that you massively underperformed yeah. because you literally undershot every single benchmark that you set for yourself. And so I think I think it's important to recognize it's not a six to one, half a dozen to the other. There's a side of that that you want to be on, right? You yeah. want to be on the side where you're giving yourself more time and then being pleasantly surprised when you have more time to do stuff and then having a plan for how to use extra time if you should find it. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so um, what do you think is going on with the highly productive humans that you come across what is going on in their mindset um that is just so different that we can maybe learn from them i mean okay i will tell you first of all and many people might take some comfort from this i coach with people who put themselves out there as incredibly highly productive people and when they fall into a crisis they don't know who to go to because they've basically been a coach or an industry leader out there sort of presenting themselves as a productivity guru and now they're having a productivity crisis and they don't know where to go because they would obviously they feel like a fraud right they feel mm -hmm. now usually it's not because they're a fraud usually it's because their business grew or tripled or doubled or quadrupled and they did have systems that were working and now their systems are all broken and, and aren't working right and so yeah. i coach with a lot of those people confidentially and i can tell you that like a lot of people will take comfort that even the people who seem like they've got it all together will come to me and they're like a wreck and i put them right. back together right so yeah. so i hope that gives people comfort to know that like even the people who are presenting as perfect online are still sort of a bit of a wreck behind the mm -hmm. scenes right so um that's the first thing is that i have rarely encountered a person been like you're good nothing to do here you're happy you're having a great life you're you know performing at a high level and here's why because you don't trip and fall into becoming lance armstrong 
right? Or, you know, or becoming, you know, Serena Williams, like you don't accidentally fall backwards. Like they are at the top 1% of 1%. They've gone pro with what they do. And that you can't accidentally become Serena Williams. You have to be massively intentional. And so what we're asking of ourselves in this modern era is to go pro with our productivity. Right. And I think it's important when you recognize because so many people are saying like, oh, this should be baseline. No, what you think is baseline is actually going pro. Being mm-hmm. an amazing mother and being in shape and being a great friend and having time for your social life and also like killing it at work and having a side business, all of these things you're doing, that represents you trying to be like the top 1% of what your brain and body can do. And so of course you need to take your systems pro to be able to support pro level competitiveness. And I think once you acknowledge that to yourself, you know, there's there's actually a comfort in that to be like, oh, I actually am demanding of myself really top 1% performance. And so maybe I should step up to top 1% coaching, top 1% systems, top 1% disciplines. Mm -hmm. Okay. So one very real factor that I think all of us face in our productivity is our well-being in general. So for example, I've been reading books a lot. And when I read books a lot, I've realized it's just a sign of my wellness. Like the fact that my mind is able to stay focused on words like that for that period of time tells me that my diet is working, um, that my mental health is good enough not to be distracted and have a mental dialogue that takes me out of the book. So reading has become a pinpoint for me of like, oh, I'm doing really well right now. Like I have the presence of mind to read. I think a lot of people, their diet is off or maybe they're like me, they have an autoimmune, like I have Lyme disease. I don't even know if Lyme is considered autoimmune really, but um, yeah, for some people it is for me, thankfully, I don't have that many symptoms, but my energy has always been slightly lower. Yeah. Um, So yeah, can you tell us a little bit about like, how do you get on top of your wellness or what are some things that we need to look at before we even pull our calendar out um, as, as human beings? Yeah. I mean, the way that I think about it is there's two paradoxes that people operate. This is going to answer more than just the health question. I hope this will answer like a deeper approach. Um, One paradigm is the get it all done paradigm where we simply list everything that we feel like we should do and start trying to work from the bottom of the list and try to get through as much of it as possible. Everybody's been down that road. We know that you in the week, you didn't get nearly as much done as you hope to get done. And that list just keeps growing and growing and growing. And you feel more and more inadequate. You feel like you're falling further and further behind. Right. Um, So that's sort of a bankrupt paradigm. The other paradigm would be operating from leverage, which is to say, okay, out of everything that I feel like I should do, what's the thing that will support everything else? Or Jerry, uh, Gary Keller and Jay Papazan said, um, what's one thing I can do such that by doing it, it makes everything else easier or necessary. So what you're doing is you're you're looking at all of your domino pieces, mm-hmm. right? Let's say that somebody pulled up a, do- a dump truck full of domino pieces in your driveway and just left two tons of dominoes, right? It's your job to sort through them, even though they all look similar. It's your job to say, okay, but there's some in here that will make all of the other ones easier, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's your job to find those. When we operate from leverage, really interesting things start to happen, right? Let's take diet and health for an example. For With health, a lot of people will create a list 50 long. I need to only eat macrobiotic, organic. I need to only be drinking, I should stop caffeine and I should start eating, drinking tea. Like they'll just make this huge list from all the podcasts and everything they've heard. When, when you start thinking about leverage, you start thinking, what's the one thing I could do for my health that would make every other endeavor pay off better? And the answer almost always comes down to sleep. Mm-hmm. Right. And it, um, I yeah, love that answer because one of the things I'm so bored of hearing is like, 
the advice of like, drink your green juice. I'm like, yeah, green juice is awesome, but you can't green juice your way into enough sleep. So (laughs) it's like people are just like living like shit and then like trying to throw something good on it to like, remedy the, th- the yeah. basic things that they actually so, need. So for example, cardio, we, we know study after study, if you're trying to build cardiovascular strength, but you're underslept, you can't do it. If you're trying to build muscle, but you're underslept, your body won't do it. If you're trying to eat well, your body can't process the food, that, that healthy food you're trying to eat if you're not getting proper sleep. I mean, sleep is genuinely, if you want to live longer, if you want to have a better mindset, if you want to have better psychology, I mean, literally study after study, sleep, 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 sleep. So your leverage point in your health is let's start first. By dialing in everything around sleep, this is why I got this aura ring, right? My surprise with my sleep was that even though I was in bed eight and a half hours and I was unconscious, so I thought I was getting good sleep, um, I was actually harvesting less than 50% of my sleep, meaning for eight and a half hours, I was getting less than four and a half hours of sleep. Would never have known that if I didn't have data on it. And that created a whole different downstream um, journey that I've been on in terms of actually getting that number up. And lo and behold... My diet's working better. My baseline, I track my baseline calories, or they call it maintenance calories. My maintenance calories went up by 400 calories, meaning I can eat 400 calories more food without gaining weight because my metabolism is working better. Because my, you know, so like everything downstream is working better with the one endeavor of getting my sleep locked in. Now, yes, you could look at that. Somebody could listen to this and say, well, I should work on my sleep. Or you could listen for the lesson, which is don't try to do all the things, find the thing that makes the doing of all the things easier. Right. You probably need to replay that a couple of times and unwrap it in your mind. (laughs) Yeah. It's like the 80, 20 rule. And you know what? I'm actually probably one of those odd little birds that you're talking to that I don't work more than 15 hours a week. I read in the other hours. I'm getting a meditation teacher certification right now. I just do things that I'm inspired by and I have a lot of space to do it. And it's because I have people on my team, like Kirsten, shout out to you. You rock my world that are so talented at things that I'm not amazing at. And I know that a lot of people listening are not entrepreneurs. Maybe they're in the workforce and you have these mindsets that kind of exist across everyone. Um, One of the things that you said was really damaging that I read in your work was magical thinking. And I want to ask you about this, but also just point out that this magical thinking is not just something that is going to damage your productivity. It is going to show up everywhere in your life. What got me into debt was magical thinking. Mm -hmm. Um, Like I can just buy this really high end thing and I'm going to make more money. I can do it. And all I need is this, whatever. I did this like 10 years ago. Magical thinking got me into debt. Magical thinking got me into the wrong relationships. Like not seeing something as it actually is, is such a damaging thing that we can do. So can you tell me a little bit about why do people have magical thinking? What does it look like to you in the productivity realm? All the things. Well, I mean, if you think about us not as seeing reality, like a lot of people will say, well, the reality that I'm experiencing is reality. But if you if you if you understand that we're hallucinating reality, that reality, we're seeing reality sort of through a funhouse mirror, then what are the warps and distortions? The warps and distortions are usually around our expectations, right? So our expectations or our hopes. And so usually magical thinking is is magical in one direction, which is the way that we hope it to be. So when you get together with a partner who has obvious flaws, but you sort of like, you know, don't look at them too hard. It's because you have a hope or a wish or an expectation that they might be the person that will fill that hole inside of you or match you in the right way. And so we sort of like tend to just like scrub or look through rose colored glasses. So it's not just that we're 
you know, where our magical thinking is distorted in a very specific way, which is biased towards what we want the world to be, right? And so people often see the world as they truly fear it to be, or they truly hope it to be, but it's really hard to see the world as it truly is. I think that's Ray Dalio who said that. So I apologize mm. if I got that quote wrong. Um, I'll say it again, just, just so people can get it. We see the world often as we fear it will be, or as we hope it will be, but not actually how it is. And so wishful thinking can be distorted in both ways towards what we want something to be or towards what we're truly afraid it will be, but not often towards what it actually is. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of, I think, magical thinking is about instant gratification. I think sometimes it comes when you don't know how to self-soothe. You don't know how to sit there with yourself and look at the situation and soothe yourself through the discomfort of saying, this is the wrong situation for me. I'm not going to meet this deadline. I have to break up with this partner. Um, yeah. I can't achieve these results and I don't want to tell my boss. So instead of self-soothing through the grief of that, it's a tool that most of us don't always learn, especially if we didn't yeah. have parents who were there for us. It's an attachment wound. Then it's like we go into the instant gratification of magical thinking. Like, well, I'm just going to put this on my credit card and do it. And it's going to feel better. I'm just going to hire this person to fix this. And yeah, maybe we could go to therapy or maybe, yeah. maybe I will get this done. Maybe I'll just like get an extra spurt of productivity and I will get that project done on time. Yeah. It's like just band-aids. So I, I know I, I empathize with anyone who has magical thinking. Cause that is probably one of my biggest things. My little brother, um, he's one of the smartest people I know. And he has a lot of magical thinking, like there's a naiveness to him where he's like, we can do it. And so I almost want to invite anyone listening, like take, like, as if you're doing like a lab experiment, like extract from your magical thinking, your positive mindset, your can do attitude, but slow it down. Notice when you're in can do energy, are you in delusional can do energy? Yeah. yeah. Um, be honest with yourself. Can, can I suggest yeah. to you like, so Carrie and I call this positive pessimism, right? Yeah. Positive pessimism is our attempt to say, hey, yes, this is what we want to do this year. Like, so positive pessimism comes into play a lot when we're doing our annual pre-planning. This is what we would hope to do this year. But it's also like the Stoics start to bring in a sense of like, what could go wrong? What do we expect to go wrong? Like, how would we counteract that going wrong? How might we need to handicap our best expectations to make sure that no matter what happens and no matter what headwinds get in the way, we'll still be able to bring the ship into port, right? This is what I call positive pessimism because so often in the current personal development environment, we hear a lot of like, no, if you say anything negative about your plans, then you're, you're bringing that negativity into your world. But if you handicap your goals and start asking yourself what could go wrong, you're actually inviting those things going wrong into your world. And I will just say a big BS on that. Actually, you want to be prepared for anything go wrong. You want to anticipate the coming of troubles so that you can put into place a plan to bring that goal home no matter what happens. So positive pessimism, I think, combines the best of manifestation, where you're like, this is definitely what I want. This is what I want to bring towards myself this year. But also, I'm willing to look at all of the different ways it can go wrong, and I'm willing to handicap it to make sure that no matter what happens, we'll get to the gig on time. Yeah, I love that. Okay, so that reminds me a lot of my time at the Pentagon. I remember my boss would frenetically run around and I'd say, what do I do? What do I do? Like chicken little, the sky's falling, you know, which kind of it was sometimes at the Pentagon, but they would always say anticipate. And I'd be like, anticipate what? You know, like it's hard to sometimes be like, I don't know how to anticipate what goes wrong, but it's because it takes time. You have to sit yeah. and think about things. And yeah. that also can come down to self-soothing, like really sit yeah. down, be with yourself, look at the situation. It's not easy as it sounds. Um, okay. So what are some other mindsets that you think really damage people from getting what they want to get done done? 
I mean, I think, gosh, there's so many. I think one of the, I think magical thinking would be number one. So let me just underline that. What you said, magical thinking is the number one mindset that holds us back. I think another mindset is, uh, you know, uh, work, what I call a f- work first mindset, where when people are starting to plan their life, they always put in the work first. And we're, we have, we come from a mindset of lifestyle first, right? So lifestyle first means that Carrie and I first peg, how do we, how do we want our days and weeks and months to go? How do I want to wake up? What time do I want to wake up? How many hours do I want to work? You know, what are the hours that I want to give to my work versus the hours that I want to give? How do I want to feel when I'm playing with my daughter? Like we start that and we lock that. And then we put work in around that. I'll give you a really good example is that I nap every single day at one o'clock. Mm-hmm. Right. So every single day, one o'clock, my head is going down for a nap. Whether I go to sleep or not is completely un- irrelevant. I'm laying down. I'm taking a break in the middle of the day. That's non-negotiable. Okay. So that I even want to pause there because I feel like how many people, when they're not being productive, they're like, the last thing I can do is take a nap. So I love yeah. your little siesta. Tell me all about that. Yeah. I mean, so for me, I'm the kind of guy who would have the head jerking at like around three o'clock in the day. Like, you know, I worked in finance and I was like, you know, I, it w- weirdly had been overstimulated and overexhausted mentally, but then understimulated physically. And so by three o'clock in the day, I'm like, I would get the like head nodding. And I just knew in my heart of hearts, if I could just lay down for 30 minutes and take a nap, like I could actually get a second wind here. But of course, in finance in New York, you can never lay down. That's never yeah. permissible. Right. And so, um, you know, so for me, when I transitioned out of finance and started designing a new life for myself, I, I literally, the first thing that I wrote down, my cornerstone was, I don't care what I move into. I just know that I need to take a nap every single day at one o'clock because when I can, when I stop fighting sleep and I actually recharge my batteries a little bit and let my body, you know, get calm and then wake up again, when I, I call it a reboot, when I reboot the computer, everything works better. I get another like two to three hours of what I call second tier work, like, you know, really good, positive energy, energetic work out of myself. I feel better. And then I can go into my evening and not be dragging. Like everything works better. It's such, again, a leverage point. It's, it's only 30 minutes, but if I can work that into my day, it just makes the entire day work better. Okay. So this is something that I feel like everyone kind of has their own set of needs. Their body works differently. Like for me, I only need a nap if I'm fighting something. Um, otherwise it makes me more tired for other people that 30 minutes is necessary. So it's like coming back to know thyself, like what do you need to be energized? Start being experimental, maybe make a list of like, what are some different, you know, ways that you can start to take care of yourself throughout the day to surge your productivity? Um, are there some other things you could think of? Like obviously fitness. Um, I just started doing Pilates. You reform. mean mindsets around fitness or just hacks that would really be hacks. awesome leverage points? Yeah. Well, like I just wanna, can I underline something you're saying? Because yeah. I think it's super important. I do think there's a strong undercurrent, whether people acknowledge it or not, that people are looking for what I call the template. And the template is this thing, this mysterious way to run your life. And we're trying to derive it from like Jeff Bezos, you know, uh, you know, Bill Gates, uh, athletes. We're trying to find that template. What is the one way that I should run my day? There's, if you are, uh, if you're possessed of that, like, I think really damaging mindset, go read the book. Daily Rituals by Mason Curry. And what you'll find is that of all the most famous scientists, poets, authors, just the, the like the most productive people in history, they were all over the map. Some worked at night, some worked in the morning, some worked in the middle of the day, some worked 10 hours a day, some worked two hours a day. Some were complete drunkards, some were total, you know, like you know, stone cold sober. And when you read that book, you come away with this strong feeling of, oh, there is no template. Right. What I need to do is stop looking out there 
for what works. Not to say that technique, individual techniques might not be applicable to me, but I need to actually apply them to me and see how they work in my specific context to find that one way that I can work that works for my biology, my psychology, the circumstances that I'm in. Maybe I'm a parent, maybe I'm single, maybe, you know, whatever it might be. So the the confluence of all those is going to form a productivity template that's like a fingerprint to you. It is it, it look the fingerprints look very similar, but every single one is going to be different in small but significant ways that really form a unique ID to just you. And your productivity should look just like you. Let me give you a quick example that you'll love. I had a woman who was in a very specific context where her clients would hit her so hard on Monday and Tuesday that by Wednesday she would be wrecked, but still because everybody else works all the way through Friday, she would just drag herself through Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Finally, she started listening to herself and ignoring the messaging from out there and she decided to take Wednesday off she was like I do I do four days of work on Monday and Tuesday let me just take Wednesday off and she just did housework like you know cleaning you know doing stuff stuff around the house and regenerating herself and then got back on the horse on Thursday and Friday so I've never heard in my life of somebody working Monday Tuesday taking Wednesday off and Thursday and Friday but when you hear her context it makes perfect sense for her and formulated that like perfect fingerprint of how she should do it does that make sense yeah, 100%. And I love that. And I think that's exactly what I was kind of looking for was like, look at what hours you work. Do you need to have a conversation with your boss of like, hey, I'm super productive from 5am to noon, like I crush it at that time. Are you open to revisiting my work schedule? Like really, I feel like we yeah. are in a world right now that is open to the power of the individual's needs. So really taking a look at that for yourself, I think is so important. Looking at when do you sleep? What hours actually work for you? Yeah. I know there's something to be said around your circadian rhythm is optimized if you're going to bed by 11. Um, but then again, you know, because those optimal sleep hours. Even there, there's a bell curve, right? You know, there's a bell curve. Exactly. You, know, you might be on a different side of the bell, bell curve. You might yeah. need less sleep. You might need more. Yeah. I mean, you asked for a different uh, like health and I would say for health and I am, you got to have to understand the context of this. I am missed. I'm not Mr. Jim. I never was the raw, raw go pump weights in the gym guy, but I have to say after having health coaches and trying everything with my metabolism and diet, I've been grossly overweight before and have lost and kept off 80 pounds. Wow. And I will say that the leverage point in health is lifting heavy weights. And the reason I say is there's almost nothing that can stimulate your nervous system, your metabolism, and your muscle mass, like lifting the heaviest weights that you can lift. I'm talking about eight out of 10, not 10 out of 10, right? All too often, you get people who move away from lifting weights because there's this bro culture associated with it. And they just think, well, I don't want to be Arnold Schwarzenegger. Don't worry, (laughs) you won't be, right? Look at me. I've been lifting heavy weights for two years. I'm no Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? But there's something about uh, what we're learning through science is that so many of the metabolic functions and the hormones that our body creates are actually being hosted and and created inside of our muscle mass. And we're Mm -hmm. even seeing that that muscle wasting in old age is the number one correlate to early death. And Mm -hmm. so I would just say for people who generally want to find that one thing that can have the most downstream benefit, I would just say lifting the heaviest weights that you possibly can is probably gonna be the smallest thing you can do to get the biggest result in terms of your health. Hey U-Turners, for this quick interruption, I want to take a moment to say thank you to our incredible sponsors over at SaneBox, an artificial intelligence-powered email tool that has been a game changer for freeing up my time and boosting my productivity. So with more than 
200 to 300 billion emails going out per day and over 7 trillion emails going out each year, it's really no secret that email is kind of slowly killing all of us. In fact, recent data shows that more than half of employees feel like their email is killing them and another study found that almost 50% of the time that managers spend tending to their inboxes is spent on emails that should have never been sent to them in the first place or didn't even require their answer. This is where SaneBox comes in. With the press of just one magical button, I've been able to say goodbye to all of those time-wasting emails and hello to my sanity and my schedule again. Seriously, everyone needs them. So when you sign up at SaneBox.com slash U-Turn, that's S-A-N-E-B-O-X dot com slash Y-O-U-T-U-R-N, you'll get 14 days for free and $25 off their super affordable membership if you decide to join and you love it as much as I do. And once you'll do that, you'll be able to easily sign into your current email box and with a click of the button, you can integrate SaneBox. And I am not very tech savvy, but I've got to admit this was super easy and from there you'll see under your inbox folder and your sent folder a couple new folder friends one is going to be called sane later which is pretty much code for spammy emails that you don't need to see and the other folder you'll see is called the sane black hole where you can drag and drop emails into both of these folders that you don't want to be subscribed to anymore between mailing lists and cold sales emails I'm at 100 black hole emails per week, such a big time saver, and my sane later box that takes all of these other emails I don't really need in my inbox, I check it once a week or so, and I'm always so pleasantly surprised to see over hundreds and hundreds of emails in there that I never needed to even see. The black hole will use artificial intelligence to get to know you and eventually auto-place emails in there to support your productivity. I check it weekly, like I said, and there's really nothing I'd have changed. What a gift. It is like a magic trick for your inbox. As I mentioned, head on over now to sanebox.com slash U-Turn. That's S-A-N-E box.com slash Y-O-U-T-U-R-N to access 14 days of Sanebox for free, as well as a $25 credit for a serious discount on their super affordable membership. If you're anything like me, you are going to be in love with it. Now let's get back to this week's episode. Okay. So does like for women, I know, you know, obviously it's not gender normative to yeah. pick Pilates, but I know that most of the people, when I look around my Pilates reformer class, they're women. Um, would you say like strength training, like bands and that kind of challenge to your body and your muscle is in the same realm, or does it have to be those heavy weights that you see at the gym? Okay. So default or sort of disclaimer, I'm not a, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a health coach. I'm not a yeah. scientist. Right. Um, but for me at being an avid, like biohacker and health hacker, I will say that my, my wife, for example, was doing Pilates. She was doing yoga. She was doing all this stuff and still had chronic aches, pains her metabolism. Wasn't where she wanted it to be. Now she's been jacking the heaviest weights that she possibly could for three years. And the only thing she has is a little bit of a really sexy Michelle Obama arm right here. Like her arms are a little bit more defined. She's no muscle woman. She's not like, you know, she, her neck didn't get thick or anything. She <laughs> looks just, she looks just like, you know, a, like a fitness model. She just looks very toned and very in shape. But what's more important is not how she looks. What's more important is she sleeps better. She doesn't get aches and pains. Her second pregnancy 
pregnancy has gone so much better than her first and her first actually went really well as well. But I would just say, like, generally speaking, think about it less as lifting weight to get muscle and more as lifting weight to get the stimulus, right? Yeah. You're looking for hormetic stress on your body. And if you're not feeling that you were stressed, you probably weren't. So for example, what are non-weight ways to stimulate yourself? Cold plunge, hot sauna, right? I'll tell you, when you go on cold plunge or hot sauna, you feel that you got a stimulus. It's, there's yeah. no mistaking it. You are like, I feel blasted or I feel like, you know, my nervous is like you, you can tell the stimulus by how you feel afterwards. And if you come out of a Pilates session, you're like, oh, my body feels so good. Then that was good, but it might not have been a stimulus. Does that okay. make sense? Yeah, I found that. So I don't like exercising and I have exercised, but it's been a while. I walk my dog 40 miles a week in New York City, which, by the way, you don't live in New York anymore, do you? Because the background. Yeah, no, you don't this look is at Columbia. Okay, okay, Columbia behind you. I'm like, all yeah. right, I spent a year and a half in this magical, smelly city. <laughs> it doesn't look like that on your computer. Um, but yeah, like when I think about Pilates Reformer for me, it's also about what works for you and, and kind of yeah, that magical agreed. thinking, right? So for me, if I sweat too much, I have to shower, get myself together. And it's just not realistic or sustainable for my life because I'm doing too much in the city. So I realized like, I can't go to a gym at 9am and lift weights and da 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 and come back yeah. and I sweat and I have to shower and do my hair and da da da. Pilates reformers for me has been great because I don't sweat in a way where I have to like shower and redo my day. Um, yep. But I feel a lot of tension on my muscles and I feel good. And so I think like finding that balance of like what works and what works for you, which is kind of what Agreed. this conversation has so been 100%. about. I mean, even it also depends where you're at, because if you're totally sedentary, then any kind of movement, you know, like let's, let's be honest, the most important movement is from zero to one right getting off the couch or getting out from behind the desk and doing anything at all is going to be the most important improvement you make for your health so please don't mistake me in saying anybody who's listening and saying oh your type of exercise is wrong i'm sure that you've done you factored everything in and found that the type of exercise you do right now is ideal for all of the factors however i do think it's worth asking yourself like, can I integrate once per week even? Like, a we actually studies have shown that people who actually do all of the working out that they would have done in three days a week and one day at the gym get literally 99% of the same result, right? Wow. So when you think about it, it's just can, if I'm if I'm enjoying Pilates Reformer, if I'm enjoying walking my dog, could I integrate maybe one session a week or one session every two weeks of a stimulus that was a little bit more aggressive in nature to give my body that bam, effect that it needs to actually be like, we're still alive. We still need to produce these hormones. We still need to do these types of things. There's nothing that 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 generates your body and reminds it reminds us that it, that it's alive like a strong stimulus. I love this so much because it's realistic. And um, I know that another mindset that you write about, talk about is perfectionism. I mean, I say in my TED talk, it's a mask that we wear when we're afraid of failure. Um, people nitpicking and pulling up products. Can you talk to us a little bit about how this mindset shows up? Why is it so damaging for productivity? Yeah, so I think a lot of people misunderstand perfectionism, right? Okay, so if you're a true perfectionist, you have no problem starting things. You just have a problem finishing them. 
And the opposite would be somebody who has a fear of starting, a fear of beginning. So first of all, before we even get into this conversation about perfectionists, are you actually a perfectionist? Because many people who call themselves a perfectionist actually have a fear of starting. So if you have a fear of starting but have no problem finishing, you're not a perfectionist. You have a fear of beginning, right? And a, probably a founded fear because when we begin things, we put ourselves emotionally on the line and we have to deal with the risk of failure. And there's so much emotionally what you have to overcome to start something. But I would say 80% of people who tell me they're perfectionists aren't actual perfectionists. They actually just have a fear of starting. A real perfectionist has no problem starting things. They just never want to finish it because they never think it's good enough to turn in. So first of all, let's get that distinction right. Yeah. Um, in terms of, uh, you know, and, and so the reason I brought up that distinction is I would say the majority of people I find actually have a fear of starting and therefore aren't even real perfectionists, right? Mm -hmm. They actually just want to genuinely get in touch with their fear of starting. And 90% of the time with a fear of starting, it's just about getting to the root of where that emotion is. I, I think IFS internal family systems is probably the most powerful psychological tool that I've discovered. Again, I'm not an expert in it, but mm -hmm. I've just probably have done more work on myself in the last year using IFS than I've done in all of my therapy combined. I mean, it's just absolutely insane. Um, it's Richard Schwartz, if you want to look into it, internal family systems. I think there's a great podcast between him and Tim Ferriss where he actually does a session on mm -hmm. Tim Ferriss. So that's a great like starting point with him. Mm -hmm. But what's great about it is IFS allows you to ask yourself, I'm doing something that I don't want to be doing and I can't seem to stop. What is at the emotional core or the emotional root of that thing? Or flip it, I can't stop doing something that, or, or sorry, I can't start doing something. I want to start doing something and I cannot bring, bring myself to start doing this thing. Why can't I? And often what you'll find is there's a part of your protector that thinks for a very good reason that it's protecting you from something. So in fear of starting, maybe it thinks it's protecting you from the fear of being rejected, right? Maybe it thinks it's protecting you from being judged, whatever it might B, often there's a, you know, a completely valid and honest attempt at a part of us to spare us from some kind of negative outcome, meaning yeah. um, Richard Schwartz often says that these internal protectors have a positive, uh, you know, a positive intuition or a positive desire for us, right? Even though there's a negative outcome, they actually have a positive you know, desire for us. They want to protect us from something. And I think that is such a game-changing paradigm because now instead of saying, what's wrong with me? Why am I such a piece of crap? Why can't I stop doing this thing? Or why can't I start doing this thing? We actually bring a lot of empathy towards ourselves and get curious towards ourselves and say like, what is the part of me that thinks it's got a, that is doing something right for me or it's protecting me from something? Let's get in touch with that. Let's understand what its motivations are. And let's start to, in a good way, erode the power that that has over me. That's really wonderful. And I, I also know that um, amongst these mindsets, when we look at magical thinking or perfectionism, that one that's like everybody has is fear or anxiety, you know, and a lot of the times we're projecting the past onto the future, like last time that didn't go well. So why do it again? Or why even try? Or I'm going to resist and do this part last. Like, talk to me a little bit about fear and anxiety. And I love that you brought up internal family systems. Um, that's what it's called, right? Internal family yes. systems therapy. IFS. IFS. Yeah. I know a lot of people doing it. It's great. Those of you who resonate, check it out. Okay. Fear and anxiety. Talk to me about that yeah. mindset and what's going well, on there. Well, first, the problem is that I think we all sort of secretly know that we've got fear and anxiety. The problem is, again, with this fingerprint concept, 
We don't know exactly how it's manifesting for us. So I could say to the cows come home, oh, you have some kind of fear or anxiety that's blocking you from starting this project. And you'd probably sort of generically say, well, yeah, that's probably true, but exactly where, exactly what kind of fear or exactly what kind of anxiety, do, what exactly do I think is going to go wrong when I start this project? And I think the huge aha moment comes when you discover for yourself exactly where that, the fear of what? I'll give you an example. When I was a child, I was raised in a drug household, right? And so, you know, I had a lot of instability and chaos in my life. And so I took on people pleasing as a way to, I projected as a child and thought that, that I was at the center of my family and that I could hold it together. And so I started engaging this behavior of people pleasing because I thought that if I could go around and make everybody okay, then our family would stay together. Now, that is obviously from an adult perspective, completely untrue. There was nothing that that seven-year-old child could do to keep the family together. And yet there's this persistent belief into adulthood that if I say no to somebody, that something very bad is going to happen. Mm. And I don't know exactly what that bad thing is, but now that I've actually gotten specific on what I think, what I really think is what's going to happen is I'm going to get rejected socially mm-hmm. and social rejection means death. At least a hundred thousand years ago, you get rejected by your tribe, you die. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, people are often shocked as a productivity coach to hear me talk so much about mindsets, about psychology. But the truth is, is we're not robots. We don't execute a program. We're emotional beings who have the capacity to be logical once in a while. And so when you really understand that, you understand that 99% of your mental blockages or mindsets are actually coming from something that you can that you can very much get to the core of, and it's usually very much an emotional blockage. And when you understand yourself more on that deeper level, it doesn't just benefit your relationships. It doesn't just benefit you walking around and feeling better every day. It, yes, can actually benefit your productivity too. Love that so much. And I, and switching gears from mindsets to the tactical side of things, yeah. I know that you're really big on planning your week and not just your day as a way to be more productive. Um, I know you surveyed 5,000 people and according to 94% of them, that seems to be the case. Um, how do we do this? How do we plan our week, um, quickly? How do we get this done? And and what else do you have to share about that idea of planning? Yeah. So, so what we've come up with, and this is from coaching with almost 50,000 people. And so we've been in the trenches. And I think one of the distinctions to make to people who are listening is we see ourselves, less as researchers and more as clinicians, meaning the the life hack method is less about creating new ideas. And we're not authors. We're not trying to churn out a book or two every every year on some new concept in productivity. What we've really been doing for the last 10 years is trying to take the existing concepts in productivity and see how we can integrate them into people's lives in the most effective ways. Mm -hmm. So we've been coaching on the front lines with people, um, over 50,000 people over the course of the last let's say 10 years. And so what's interesting about that is we found that um, we've tested all of these productivity paradigms. Should you test, should you plan your day out every single day for the next day? Should you plan it once per month? I mean, what, what's the cadence? What's the pace? Like how, how often should you be planning? How long should you be planning? And here's what we found. The best cadence of planning is on a weekly basis, meaning every Friday evening, planning your week for the next week and planning it in a lot more detail than maybe people would associate with planning. Meaning when I create a plan for the week, I'm planning out the 24 hours, seven days a week for the next seven days. I'm creating a very detailed plan for the next seven days, which alleviates me from the need to plan every single day because I've pretty much planned the next seven days. There's really, you don't have to replan every single day, right? Which allows you to get into action mode 
right? I call it the general and the soldier. If you're only in general mode once per week and you do it right, then you can be in soldier mode for the rest of the week and just get into that nice consistent rhythm of executing. I find that this is way more humane, a way to operate because it means that you don't have to be perfect every day. You can have a bad day or two bad days and still make up for it by the end of the week and get your, what we call champagne moment done by the end of the week. Now I could talk ad nauseum about it, but I think it also just generally matches the rhythm that we've got going in culture, you know, there is this rhythm of working during the week and then taking a pause during the weekend. And so there's something about pulling away from daily and not driving yourself crazy by trying to be perfect every day or hate your targets every day and, and have a bit of a softer focus and say, okay, I can do a lot. I can have good days and bad days, and I'm going to get there in the next week. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I know that sometimes people are going to try their very best to sit down every week and plan out their week. And sometimes it just, it's not, it's not working or, you know, they are excited to plan, but they're actually panicked about it. Um, what can you do to create some grace here? Yeah. Well, first of all, let's just sympathize with them and say, you know, planning is like, of course we ignore, ignore planning. Of course we avoid planning because even if it's a half an hour, we're experiencing that in that one half hour block, we're experiencing a week's worth of stress, fear, and anxiety compressed into one half hour block. So of course there's avoidance around it. I think people think there's some perfect way to plan that's going to feel good. No, actually even done perfectly, planning is going to feel stressful, fearful, and anxious because we're, well, that's the nature of planning. It's uh, the Stoics call it premeditatio malorum, the, the premeditation of future evils, right? Mm-hmm. When you're planning right, you are in 30 minutes looking at everything that could go wrong in the last week. So how is that going to feel good? The answer is doesn't, right? Mm -hmm. It's not supposed to. Even done perfectly, it doesn't feel good. I think how you can alleviate that is to to actually create a really potent and calming reward for your planning. So for example, my wife and I go to a cafe every single week. It's very luxe. It's very, you know, it's a very luxurious experience. The environment is very calming, very soothing. And, uh, we, at the end of our planning, we give ourselves a reward of like a, you know, a nice latte and a croissant, you know, chocolate croissant. So we're giving ourselves this sort of soothing, rewarding experience to sort of, it's a bit of the, you know, uh, the, the medicine, you know, the sugar wrapped around the medicine, you know, yeah. it's just so you don't gag on the medicine, you sort of wrap a little candy around it, just so you can get it down. And um, we've done that with so many of our clients, thousands of our clients created a planning experience where we, you know, we give them the medicine, but we wrap it in a little bit of candy. And it's surprising how smoothly it can go down. Yeah. Funny enough, I give my dog medicine and I put butter around it and he like manages to eat the butter and spit out the medicine. Yeah, right. <laughs> my clients are better than my dog Jupiter. Um, okay. So um, I love the idea of making it kind of an experience and between you and your wife are just like power couple from the sounds of things because you're both buff, doing your heavy weights, doing your luxury planning, loving this. And then also, I know that a lot of people left their offices and now they're working from home and that yeah. can be a really hard place to, to be see change. Yeah, to see change. it's huge. So tell me a little bit about what can we do to make our home spaces feel more productive and effective? Yes. I mean, it's a lot of people are deciding to go and work in co-working spaces because they're actually recognizing the utility of getting out of the house. And there's more places than ever cafes, sort of hybrid cafe and co-working places. So this has become radically popular. And so you, you know, I have clients who are saying like, how do I make my home world more productive? And I'm like, well, 
did you like the office? And they say, yeah, I love the office. I'm like, oh, maybe you should go to a co-working space. And they're like, oh, I never realized that. So, so for some portion, remember, we said it's like a fingerprint. You have to really look at yourself. Where, where do you thrive and how do you thrive? And so for some portion of people, the answer might be not trying to make the home a productive environment and actually just embracing that that actually you like getting out of the house and you'd like the break from the kids and the dogs and the distractions and that you like going into work and seeing other people and having a reason to dress up and feel like a human being right and if that's the case you want to optimize around that however if you are stuck at home and mm-hmm. there's no other options i think um my, my wife it's so funny i've said this for so long and my wife just like discovered it as if it's like the newest thing in the world but i'm um, over the ear noise canceling headphones there's nothing like it Mm. Over the ear, noise canceling headphones. Um, if I, I had a woman who literally just had a tiny little closet that she pulled all of the stuff out of and put a, a tiny little desk into, and so her, so she wasn't looking at her kids or dogs. They were all running behind her, right? But she actually wasn't physically seeing them. And with the noise canceling headphones over her ear, she also wasn't hearing anything that was happening behind her. And she said it was crazy, like. You know, she would be in the zone all day and then turn around and say, have you guys been here? And they were like, yeah, we've been here playing right behind you, you know, throwing things at each other and just going madhouse. But because of the noise canceling headphones, you realize that when you block your senses, it's almost as if nothing is happening. Right. Mm. And so if you can't see it happening, if you can't hear it happening, if you can't smell something burning that makes you go, what's burning? Right. So if your senses are not engaged and you can isolate your senses, then you are in a place where you can actually go into a different world, right? And so, you know, really, it's that simple. If you can look for a closet, a corner, anything where you can close off your senses and isolate yourself so that you can get into a focused place. Mm, My Bose noise canceling headphones, the quiet comfort ones, I think they're like it. So and I took and by the way, not the not the the, they have the beats where it's flat against your ear. Uh, uh, uh. You want over the ear completely. Yes. Yes. Encapsulating the ear. Yes, I I have those exact ones. I love that you pointed that out. Um, Okay, so final question, because FYI, I have Pilates in 12 minutes across the street because I'm productive (laughs) over here. So before I ask you where everybody can find you, I want to know what is the most important strategy that you teach people so that you really feel like they have a tool to win at their week. Yeah. I mean, what's great about this question is when we went out, when we set out to write a book, um, we're actually notorious for saying that we don't need more books in culture, right? We've got actually got too many books. There's too many ideas out there. It actually is creating a churn and a confusion. And so, you know, we went 10 years without writing a book and we finally asked ourselves, like, if there was only one, if we couldn't coach with somebody, if somebody never came and took one of our classes, never paid us a dime, and we and we just put one idea into culture, I call it the line of code. If mm-hmm. you're lucky, you can modify the broader code base of society with by one line, just one mm-hmm. small line. And so we asked ourselves, if there was a one line of code we could fix in the broader society, what would it be? And it would simply be that people don't know how to plan their weeks. And if mm-hmm. they did know how to plan their weeks, they would experience a gigantic shift forward in getting from defense to offense, feeling so much more power, getting so so much more time back, just feeling a better sense of being in control of their life. And so if you never look us up, if you never go to our YouTube page, if you if you never hear of us ever again, check out our book, Winning the Week, because it is our, I, we generally wrote, wrote it with the feeling of, okay, we've worked for 10 years on the front lines of productivity. And if there's only one thing that we can teach people from what we've learned, what would it be? And that's what we put in that book. Part of your dream includes starting up your own podcast, 
go to Libsyn.com, that's L-I-B-S-Y-N.com, and put in my promo code U-TURN, Y-O-U-T-U-R-N, and you're going to get up to two months of free podcasting service. I've tried other platforms and I ended up loving Libsyn and staying with them because they offer me incredible customer support, real-time analytics, which I look at all the time to see how the show is doing. Just go to Libsyn.com, L-I-B-S-Y-N.com and use my promo code Y-O-U-T-U-R-N-U-T-U-R-N. What are you waiting for? It's time for you to start your show. Yeah. Love this so much. Okay. Where can everybody, where do you feel like is the best place for everybody to start learning from you? Um, I totally agree. Whenever people say like, I want to write a book, I'm like, but who am I to do that? I'm like, go to Barnes and Noble and realize how many people process that exact thought. You could totally be one of them if you want. Yeah. And yes, there's a lot of ideas out there. I feel like there's always room for someone magical to add something different to the conversation, but um, I love what you're sharing. Where do you think we should start learning from you, following yeah. you, all the things? You know, it depends on, on your flavor. If you, if you want to just skim the cream off the top and the book is a great place to start. We've got an audiobook version narrated by me. It's called winning the week. Um, you could also, I think it's 99 cents still on Amazon. You can check out our, uh, the Kindle version of the book. Um, you, for those people who love a physical book, there's a physical book as well, but, um, 99 cents on Kindle and very affordable on, um, on audiobooks. So that's called winning the week. If you like YouTube better, um, you can check us out on YouTube at Lifehack Method, and you can check out our website, lifehackmethod.com, if you want to, you know, go even deeper and, and learn more about what we do. This was so great. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I love your energy for what you do. It's it's a rare treat. And um, yeah, I can't wait for everybody to listen to this. Thank you. And get a good Pilates workout in. I know. Now I need to do weight training. Get training. that stimulus. You. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for tuning into the U-Turn podcast. And thank you again so much for our sponsors. We are here because of you and to our listeners. Thank you for checking out our sponsors. We always pick people and brands that we trust and we believe in. And just for listening to the show, writing your reviews on the Apple app, and just being willing to make your own U-Turns. We'll see you next week. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join podcast royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.